Welcome, dear listeners, to Philosophy Crossroads, where we delve into the intricate tapestry of philosophy and its intersections with other disciplines. Today, we continue our series on The Republic, beginning week two. In last week's episode, we discussed the background of the creation of the Republic and the relationship between Plato's political practice and this work. Then, we interpreted the opening part of The Republic, discussing the three challenges Socrates must face to address the essence of justice. The first challenge involves the conventional understanding of justice. Justice is returning what one owes, or helping friends and harming enemies. The second challenge is the realistic understanding of justice. Justice is the interest of the stronger. The third challenge is the contractual understanding of justice. Justice is a compromise between the strong and the weak. Plato's two brothers, Glaucon and Adeimantus, presented this last challenge, making Socrates feel quite troubled. On one hand, he felt he had exhausted all his strategies to refute Thrasymachus's realism, and now found himself at a loss for defending justice further. On the other hand, he considered this challenge particularly strong and significant, feeling a duty and obligation to defend justice more vigorously. Thus, he devised an indirect, circuitous route to salvation, crafting an analogy between the soul and the city-state to reveal the essence of justice while responding to the brothers' challenge. In fact, by the point where Glaucon and Edimantus introduced their challenge in the Republic, there hasn't been much direct relation to the city-state or state itself. The previous discussions were all about the nature of justice. Is justice beneficial to a person? The work earns its title, the Republic, and its status as a political classic in Western political thought history, entirely because here, Plato lets his Socrates engage dramatically with the city-state in the discussion. Socrates says, facing such a formidable challenge, he feels dizzy and can no longer see what justice really is. This is like asking him to read a line of fine print from a distance, which he simply cannot see. But if at this time we discover the same words written somewhere larger and in bigger font, wouldn't we have found a shortcut? We could first look at the bigger letters, understand them, then compare them to the smaller ones to see if they match. The same words Socrates refers to here are justice. The larger place is the city-state, and the smaller place is the human soul. We use the term justice to describe a city-state, like calling Athens a just city-state. We also use justice to describe a person, like saying Socrates is a just person. Now that we have encountered difficulties in searching for individual justice, if we can first find justice within the city-state, then turn back to search for justice within the individual soul, it might be much easier. This is the circuitous route to salvation Socrates thought of. From here, the discussion is steered towards the city-state. This episode follows Socrates' line of thought, first examining how he discusses the emergence and development of the city-state and the basic structure of the ideal city-state. Second, how he identifies the four main virtues within the ideal city-state, namely wisdom, courage, moderation, and justice. Third, how Socrates proves the structure of the soul is the same as that of the city-state and defines the four virtues within the soul. Let's look at the emergence and evolution of the city-state. Socrates cuts to the heart of the matter, 
starting from the origin of the city-state or human community. Initially, he subtly corrects the basic assumptions about human nature made by the wise Thrasymachus, brothers Glaucon, and Adeimantus. These individuals believe that humans are inherently bad, always wanting more for themselves, seeking to dominate and control others. However, Socrates sees the origin of the city-state in the necessity of cooperation since no individual can be self-sufficient. This mutual need led to the formation of the earliest political communities. People's varied needs naturally led to the division of labor, as this would increase each person's work efficiency and, through exchange, better satisfy everyone's needs. By the way, when Adam Smith wrote The Wealth of Nations, his thoughts were quite similar to Plato's in The Republic. He didn't just emphasize the selfish aspect of human nature, but also highlighted the cooperative aspect among different people. He also began constructing his entire economic edifice from the division of labor. Returning to Socrates' discussion on the origin of the city-state, he mentioned that this initial human city-state would basically need only farmers to provide food, architects for shelter, textile workers and cobblers for clothing and shoes, carpenters and metal workers for tools, shepherds for livestock, traders to facilitate exchange, and a physician for healthcare. Each person focusing on their craft, achieving one man, one job, for maximum specialization, thus improving efficiency and quality. Socrates calls this a healthy city-state because it aims solely at meeting people's most basic natural needs without any excess demands. However, Glaucon calls this a city of pigs because this city-state lacks any human culture, art, or luxury, offering only basic survival with no real living. He asks Socrates to expand this city-state adding more furniture, gourmet foods, spices, paintings, sculptures, gold, silver, jewels, etc. Socrates responds that this would lead to a feverish city-state, indicating that the city-state has exceeded natural human needs, similar to how a fever exceeds the body's normal temperature. Yet, the emergence of this city-state is the inevitable result of expanding human desires and needs, which are difficult to satisfy, the bottomless pit of desires. Once the city-state's needs grow, the original land will inevitably become insufficient, leading to inevitable wars between city-states, fueled by endless desires and relative scarcity of resources. Still adhering to the one-man, one-job principle of specialization, this feverish city-state would require a professional army. These soldiers need to possess qualities akin to those of a dog gentle with their own people but fierce towards strangers. We will encounter more dog-related analogies in the next episode. To raise such an army to defend the city-state, it's necessary to select individuals with the right talents and provide them with appropriate education. The education of these guardians should cover both the arts and physical training, with arts education mainly focusing on poetry and music, to foster gentleness and kindness towards their own people and physical training oriented towards warfare to develop fierceness and aggression towards enemies. In discussing the education of guardians, the Republic extensively covers the so-called censorship system. Socrates demands strict censorship of educational content, for example, forbidding stories of quarrels among the gods, 
Inexplicable punishments from the gods towards humans, heroes grieving painfully over the death of friends or comrades, and the depiction of the underworld as a place of gloom and fear. The purpose of these educational content restrictions is to ensure that young guardians grow up believing in the goodness of the gods, who do no evil but reward good and punish evil, and that dying for one's city-state and friends is not to be feared. Bravery is an important virtue. In short, it's about establishing a correct worldview and outlook on life for the guardians from a young age. Socrates also makes strict regulations on the form of education, such as prohibiting the use of tragedy or comedy, which easily stir emotions, and excluding. Certain musical modes and instruments considered frivolous, training guardians to view all things as rationally as possible and control their emotions. The rulers of the city-state are selected from among these educated guardians. These censorship measures of educational content and form naturally become a focal point of criticism because they contradict the modern value of freedom of speech and even seem out of place compared to the free atmosphere of Athenian democracy. However, it's important to note that freedom of thought and freedom of speech are not Plato's main concerns. He is more interested in achieving the best order in the city-state and the best life for its citizens. More controversial than the censorship system is the famous noble lie, more accurately called the myth of the metals. Socrates, borrowing and adapting a famous myth from the Greek epic poet Hesiod's works and days, uses it here. Hesiod spoke of humanity's history through the ages of gold, silver, bronze, heroic, and iron, with his own era being the worst, the Iron Age, with humanity's former glory long past. Socrates adapts this myth not to describe different ages humanity has gone through, but to attribute the characteristics of these ages to individuals within the same city-state. He says that different metals are mixed in people's souls. Some have gold, the noblest, who should be rulers of the city-state. Others have silver, suited to be city-state's warriors, and still others have bronze and iron, fitting for the city-state's farmers and artisans. These three classes should maintain clear boundaries. If there's confusion, allowing those who shouldn't rule to become rulers or those meant to be soldiers to become farmers, the city-state faces the danger of internal conflict and dissolution. In The Republic, Socrates openly admits that the story about different metals in souls is a lie intended to make people accept their place in the city-state. He says that even if people might not believe it immediately, it could be gradually instilled in every citizen's heart through generations of education, making them slowly accept it. Even if the city-state's highest rulers know it's a lie, at least they should make others believe it's true. However, from another perspective, this lie does have a basis in truth, that everyone's talents are indeed different, and people are suited to different tasks. An ideal city-state aims to let everyone do what they're best at, ensuring the principle of one man, one job, specialization. Brainwashing the city-state's people with the myth of metals isn't about instilling overly false ideas, but rather making them more content with their status, devoid of ambitions beyond their capabilities and suitable tasks. The underlying intention is actually for everyone's own good, you might question whether such a political system, where rulers predetermine everyone's roles, 
is truly beautiful. This approach resembles parental logic. Children, being naive, need parents to tell them what to do and what's good for them. This stands in stark contrast to modern thinking, where everyone is their own master, capable of making well-informed decisions about matters concerning themselves. Here, Socrates constructs his vision of an ideal city-state, transforming the feverish city-state into a rational city-state. Now, let's briefly summarize Socrates' big circle argument. He says that finding the justice of the soul is too difficult, so we start with the justice of the city-state. To find the city-state's justice, we first need to understand the essence and structure of the city-state, especially the best ideal city-state structure. Thus, he begins with the origins of the political community, discussing the inability of individuals to be entirely self-sufficient, the characteristic mutual need among people, and the basic principle that division of labor can improve efficiency and meet more needs. On this basis, Socrates builds a healthy city-state. But because this city-state only satisfies people's most basic living needs, Glaucon calls it a city of pigs, and begins to expand the city-state's needs, turning it into a feverish city-state. Socrates then remodels this feverish city-state laid out by Glaucon by dividing the city-state into three classes, providing appropriate education for the most important class of guardians, and using the noble lie to ensure each class stays in its place. This forms a stable ideal city-state, which Socrates calls the most beautiful city-state, or beautiful city. Socrates' next step is to find the four main virtues within this ideal city-state, namely wisdom, courage, moderation, and justice, especially identifying the place of justice. At this point, everyone participating in the discussion agrees that Socrates' beautiful city is the best city-state, which means it should possess all virtues or good qualities. Socrates believes the four most important virtues are wisdom, courage, moderation, and justice, these virtues, known as the Four Cardinal Virtues, have continued into Roman and medieval times. We also mentioned these four main virtues in our first episode on the Symposium. Their next task is to define these four virtues within the city-state and determine where they manifest. With the previous groundwork, this task seems not so difficult. The city-state's wisdom is the knowledge and skill of the rulers, their good judgment in political affairs a virtue particularly belonging to the rulers. The city-state's courage specifically belongs to the guardians, who, according to the rulers' instructions, understand what is to be feared and what is not, and maintain this understanding. The city-state's moderation belongs to the entire city-state, a kind of harmony and order, where the entire city-state, especially the producers and guardians, willingly accept the rulers' various commands accepting their rule and eliminating any excessive and presumptuous desires. In the last part of this section, they find the city-state's justice in a very dramatic way, calling it dramatic because Socrates says, searching for justice with his friends felt like hunting in a forest, but in the end they found it effortlessly, as if they were looking for a donkey while riding on it. The justice they were seeking was the very foundation of the earliest, healthy city-state they established, the basic principle of one man, one job. What is justice in the city-state? It's each class in the city-state, 
under the guidance of the rulers, staying in their place, performing their roles, with everyone doing what they're best suited for. After identifying the four main virtues within the city-state and clarifying the big picture of justice in the city-state, Socrates and his friends turn to the soul, attempting to read the fine print within the soul. They first need to determine whether the soul and the city-state have the same structure, whether the term justice can be applied to both the city-state and the soul in the same sense. Here, through Socrates, Plato introduces the tripartite theory of the soul. We've already seen in Phaedo that understanding the soul, grasping its essence, is one of philosophy's most challenging topics, because the soul is intangible, invisible, and cannot be observed like a scientific experiment. It's also closely related to each person's existence, making objective examination and description difficult. Thus, understanding it relies purely on logical reasoning. In Phaedo, Plato tries various ways to prove the soul's immortality, while in the Republic, he aims to reveal a deeper structure of the soul. Socrates uses a clever method to determine the soul's components, proposing a basic principle. The same thing cannot, at the same time, in the same respect, and relative to the same thing, do opposite things. If it appears to do opposite things at the same time, in the same respect, and relative to the same thing, then it must not be a single entity, but a composite. This might sound too abstract, so let's use Plato's own example to explain. Imagine a spinning top spinning steadily in place. We can indeed say it's both moving and not moving, because it's stationary relative to the ground, but moving relative to the surrounding air. From its axis, it might seem stationary, but from its edge, it's moving. We cannot say the top's edge is both moving and not moving at the same time, in the same respect and relative to the same thing. Nor can we say the top's axis is both moving and not moving in the same conditions. Thus, we must conclude the top is composed of different parts, such as the axis and edge, making it a composite. Applying this principle to the soul, we see that the soul is not a monolith, but a composite consisting of different parts. For example, when you crave a cigarette but realize you're on a plane and can't smoke, yet the desire to smoke might be strong, leading to anger towards the desire to smoke outside of the decision not to smoke. You might tell yourself, why am I so weak? Can I just resist? At this moment, this emotional response supports the decision not to smoke. But sometimes, this emotional response might support the desire to smoke, pushing aside the soul's inhibitions against smoking. This smoking example isn't from Plato, but it illustrates the three parts of the soul derived from the principle mentioned above. In this example, the desire to smoke represents your appetite. The recognition of the surrounding environment, telling me I can't smoke, is your reason. And the emotional part, mostly supporting reason in suppressing appetite, but sometimes aiding appetite in driving away reason is what Plato calls spirit. Plato, in another work, depicts the soul's three parts more vividly. He compares the entire soul to a charioteer driving a chariot pulled by two horses, one black, wild, always trying to veer off course, and the other white, generally docile, obeying the charioteer, but sometimes led astray by the black horse. You might have guessed the charioteer represents the soul's rational part, 
the black horse represents appetite, and the white horse represents spirit. Socrates sees the soul's three parts as corresponding to the three classes within the city-state. Reason corresponds to the city-state's rulers, spirit corresponds to the city-state's guardians, and appetite corresponds to the city-state's producers. With this correlation established, you can understand the four main virtues within the soul. The soul's wisdom is the power of reason, able to analyze situations and give correct commands. The soul's courage is primarily the virtue of the spirit, obeying reason's commands, allowing those with the virtue of courage to hold their ground and fight bravely. The soul's moderation is harmony and order, mainly manifesting in spirit and appetite, obeying reason's leadership, not overindulging in food, sex, and other desires. And the soul's justice is reason, spirit, and appetite, each performing their roles under reason's leadership. With this, Socrates essentially achieves his circuitous route to salvation, introducing the analogy between the soul and the city-state, identifying the city-state's three classes and four main virtues, and then, by distinguishing the soul's three parts, proving the soul and the city-state have the same structure, thus identifying the four main virtues within the soul. After such a discussion, responding to Glaucon and Adimantus's challenge becomes less difficult, because by now they both agree that the city-state must be managed justly to be orderly, strong, able to maintain internal order and ensure external security. Correspondingly, the soul must also be organized justly to be orderly and strong. This is like the human body, where only when the elements of water, fire, earth, and air each perform their roles and stay in their places, can the body achieve harmony and health. If the body is tormented by various diseases or is corrupt, even if you possess all the world's gold and silver, every delicacy, you won't be able to enjoy them. Similarly, the soul must also be organized according to the virtue of justice to achieve harmony and order. Only then can we say the soul is healthy. Everyone wishes to live and to live well, and the soul is what keeps us alive. Therefore, we wish for our souls to be well, making the health of the soul a matter of utmost importance. Thus, each of us needs the virtue of justice to ensure the order and health of our souls. Even if we don't receive any benefits from the reputation of justice, justice remains our most precious treasure because it keeps the source of our life, the soul, in a healthy state. Here, Socrates completes his argument. To conclude, we've taken a deep dive into Socrates' complex philosophical views on the soul, justice, and the ideal city-state, as laid out in Plato's The Republic. We've seen how Socrates constructs an analogy between the soul and the city-state and defines the four virtues within each. We have also explored the concept of a noble lie and how it serves to maintain order and harmony within a city-state. The notions of justice and the health of the soul have been brought to the fore, reminding us all of the importance of maintaining a healthy soul for a good life. Join us in the next episode as we continue to explore these themes and delve deeper into the philosophies of Socrates and Plato. Thank you for listening.